A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Please note that some listeners may find the content of this show upsetting. Due to the often sensitive nature of discussion, this show is not suitable for children. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I talk to the journalist and author Satnam Sangira about the role of the media within the criminal justice system. What is its responsibility? Is the media helping or hindering society in its attitudes towards criminal justice? Well, the difference between you and I and the media and also readers is that most people do not have experience in prisons. Most people haven't had a member of their family in prison, so it's not humanised for them. It's just this intangible thing that happens to terrible people. So I'm Satnam Sangera. I'm a feature writer with The Times and a columnist too. I've written two books. One is called The Boy with a Top Knot, which came out about 10 years ago. It was on BBC TV last year. And another book called Marriage Material, which is being turned into a play. I write about a huge variety of things, from business to politics and occasionally prisons too. Okay, so Satnam, what about your upbringing? How did you, how did you get to where you are today? What was, what well, I'm from, like? uh, I always think, I'm literally from nowhere in the sense that I'm from Wolverhampton. That's not nowhere. No one knows <laughs> where that is. And um, I'm the son of my father, who's illiterate, can't read and write. My mum didn't speak English. I have 54 first cousins, so a huge Sikh family. Um, and I was one of the first to go to university. And also I was one of the first to not get married within the community. So I ended up going to Cambridge University, which makes me very different from the rest of my family. And gives me quite a strange story, I guess. Mm. Quite unusual. Yeah. Um, the defining thing about my childhood, I guess, is that my father and my sister have schizophrenia. And the defining thing about my adulthood is that I didn't realise, or I, I think I didn't realise until my 20s, that they had this terrible illness. And um, one of the things in my childhood where it almost became apparent was when my father, one night, he had a bit of eczema on his head. And I said to him, and I was thinking I was about nine years old, and I said to him, Dad, you must get that looked at. And he said... No, I don't need to get that looked at. I, I got that when I was banging my head against the prison wall. And that was one of the moments where I think I knew something terrible had happened. But I didn't follow it up with questions because as a child, 
I didn't really have the equipment and it scared me so much. And so I kind of chose not to know. And uh, it all eventually um, became a bit of a crisis. So I spent, when I reached the age of 30, I left my job at the Financial Times and decided to write a book about what had happened to my parents and also confront his mental illness and uh, our story and also how different I'd become from them. But I guess my interest in prisons um, is about that. Mm. It's about the mental illness because, I mean, I was looking at some of the stats this morning and apparently what, nine out of ten people in prison have some kind of mental illness or drug or alcohol misuse, right? Yeah, and I certainly feel if you didn't have one when you went in, you're probably exactly. you're probably going to have something by the time you come out if you've been removed from your family and had yeah. the trauma of going inside. And not only that, if you have a severe mental illness and paranoia is often one of the symptoms of it mm. and you put that person into prison, yeah, that's going to make them much, much worse. So when I think of prisons, I think of my father who, you know, he did commit a crime. He ended up in prison and... He was already diagnosed because he went to prison. Unfortunately, he came out and he's been in treatment ever since. But I think about those, I think, is it seven out of 10 of sentenced prisoners have more than one mental illness? Apparently, 15% of men and 30% of women have a serious mental illness. And the prevalence of mental health issues in women is often higher because they're often more likely to be abused by the person to whom they say, I love you, too. You know, so the levels of interpersonal violence tend to be a lot higher for women. So they say that um, that's why the mental health rates are yeah. greater. Well, that was um, my mum's incredible story in that she was had an arranged marriage with my father. And she was only 15 or six, probably 16 years old, mm. came from India, couldn't speak the language, was married to my father, had never met him before. And he was already having a schizophrenic breakdown and he spent years beating her up. And she saved him. She basically got him the treatment. But... Crucially, it was going to prison that was the crux point at which this, the authorities finally gave him the treatment he needed. So I'm, I'm very aware of what's going on. And you know, there's this whole thing going on in the media at the moment about mental illness. It's become trendy, right? Yeah. And there's all these campaigns going on. And I find I can never join in because often they're talking about anxiety, depression, which are terrible things. But yeah. they're not talking about the hardest thing of all. If you want to talk about what's really taboo in this country, talk about violently mentally ill people in prison. I think that is the hardest thing to talk about in the media because the answer is usually lock them up, Yeah. right? And I feel like as a journalist, I could make a difference. I haven't done much, but I know I will one day. Mm. And because I also know, because there's so little being done, you can make a huge difference. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, so you've touched on a few things there. Mental illness, schizophrenia, domestic violence and prison. Cheerful. And, and really cheerful. <laughs> Those are all really challenging things in our society in Britain. What? How does that play out in the Sikh community that I know very little about? Well, it's, it's a paradox because let's just talk generally about immigrant communities in Britain. Um I think we have higher rates of severe mental illness, but also we have uh, higher recovery rates. Mm. And no one knows why. There's various theories. One of the theories is about expre expressed emotion, which is about how if you're, say, from an Indian family and you have a severe mental illness, um, you're not ostracized necessarily. And the way I always say it is that part of the reason I didn't know about my dad 
is that the behavior of my uncles was pretty bizarre too. It's pretty elevated behavior. Right. And like my dad was dragged along to everything. He was at every wedding. He wasn't shut away. Whereas in a white middle-class family, if someone has a severe mental illness, it's an issue. You lock them away or you're always trying to sort it out or you're talking about it. And so there's one theory is by not making it a big issue, you get better. Another theory is that people from the so-called developing world, um, even if they have a severe mental illness, uh, they can still work or their labor is still needed. And because they work, they get better because they're involved in society. You know, they're doing something. Mm. So that's another theory. But it's quite complicated, you know. Yeah, we have high high incidence, but, you know, higher recovery rates too. And everyone's an individual, right? And the reasons why someone might become schizophrenic might be for a myriad of reasons. Yeah. But the worst the worst side of it, I guess, for in immigrant communities, especially in the Indian community, is there's a whole association with uh, superstition and black magic. I'm sure you see this in prisons as well, in that there's an assumption that if something goes wrong with you mentally, someone's put a spell on you. And the most tragic thing about my mum's life is that not only was she married off to a man having a severe mental breakdown, not only did she save him, and not only then did she have a child who also had schizophrenia, she was then blamed by the extended family for giving my father the mental illness. I mean, my grandmother basically accused her of being a witch and said, you've done this to him. And so I, it's almost... When I think I'm a mom, she's almost like a Nelson Mandela kind of figure to come through that much, to be blamed for the thing that has ruined your life mm. and then to save everyone and to have a son who ended up at Cambridge. So it's an amazing, it's completely I, I see my life, life story is basically her achievement. You know, yeah. she's an amazing, strong woman. And she's woman. still around today. Yeah, she is. Yeah. yeah. And she's still looking after my dad. And my dad is like pushing 70 and he's been on severe antipsychotics for more than 50 years. Yeah. Very unusual. Very. The fact that he's had such a good long life is um, because of my mother. But when I sit, sat down with her and tried to get her her story, the hardest bit was about prison mm. because, you know, she had no money. She had four kids. Visiting Winston Green Prison in Birmingham took like four hours on the buses. How long was he inside for? I think several months and just no, imagine, agonizing. I imagine he didn't come out better or did he? I think he was diagnosed then. Right, so um, that, I guess... was a good thing. It's a good thing. But... There's an argument to say that <laughs> it would have been better had he got the diagnosis without going there, but... Yeah, and... Uh, but I, I think also that was the point at which the extended family accepted. Finally, he had an illness. Right. But... And um, so therefore people were gentler with him because of that, would you yeah, say? Yeah, and also they were... They saw what my mum did, you know. But she used to have to beg for money off, you know, my dad's mum for the bus fare to go... Mm. Also, she was working as well. You know, she was a sewing machinist. Yeah. I mean, it's just unimaginable how hard that must have been. So absolutely, that's but why you, I care about prisons. Really. Yeah, you're a respected journalist. And um, and today I sort of want to cover the relationship really between um, the media and our criminal justice system, obviously with more of an emphasis on prisons um, and justice in general. And I know you can't speak on behalf of the media, because that's a <laughs> quite, quite a responsibility. But Also, I'm at the more whimsical end, because 
you know, I, I write long features yeah. and columns. Yeah. Well, could, could you perhaps um, explain when we say the media, it's a bit like when people say the criminal justice system or the prison system. You know, it's so complex and there's so much in that. So can you just break down what the media sort of is for our yeah. listeners? Well, also, you know, when people talk about journalists, there's so many types of journalists. I mean, there's me. I write quite long pieces. Then there's news reporters. And you've got sub-editors who are laying out the stories on the page. You've got the editors who decide what stories run. So we, even within a newspaper, you have a huge variety. And then you have the online journalists. But then you have the media, you know. And so people do often think of, like, newspapers as the media in this kind of Clark Kent, Superman kind of way. But, you know, newspaper circulations are falling increasingly. And also TV audiences are falling. Increasingly, it's things like Netflix, it's social networking, it's YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. You could even say some journalism happens on WhatsApp. So it's an mm. incredibly disparate thing. Um, it's full of contradictions. One of the most powerful con contradictions is that I think people are reading more journalism or seeing more journalism than ever. It's just that the businesses are struggling to make it pay. You know, you could say, for example, documentaries are hugely popular on Netflix now. People yeah. will sit down and watch nine hours of documentaries, yeah. murder, murder mysteries and all this kind Absolutely. of Absolutely. And of course, mm. you know, news stories out of date these days within about 10 minutes. So you get the week and yeah. you're like, well, about 10 million things have happened since, you know, since this has gone to print. And of course, on Twitter, every sort of second, really, you know, you're so up to date and surely print media can't sort of keep up with that right yeah yeah i mean it's uh, twitter's changed my life you're on it as well aren't you mm -hmm. and it's uh i hate it and i love it mm. you know it's uh it makes every single story an issue alive but also it means that every single person who has anything bad to say about you or the things you care about is instantly in your pocket yeah and can access you or your brain first thing in the morning mm. and i don't think that's good for your mental health absolutely and i think exactly so when it comes to the media of course it's big and it's wide and it's complex but it's incredibly powerful yes yeah, and you have the good you have the bad you have the ugly and I suppose when it comes to reporting on things like prisons um, you know you've got a big problem with sort of free speech versus fear arousal and sort of peddling stories that might be either untrue or unhelpful so can you sort of try and explain to us how we're meant to cope with this free speech versus um, detrimental reporting. Well, there's a fundamental contradiction. I think prisons is the most extreme example of this between what people in the prison sector and NGOs want to talk about and what the media are interested in. And I guess the issues in prisons are stuff like overcrowding, racism, mental illness, suicide, violence... That covers it. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, the, I mean you could sort of sit for a whole day, probably listing, yeah. but those, yeah. And the things, the things the media, and this is TV, newspapers, radio, are interested in are notorious prisoners who have colourful personalities mm -hmm. or did terrible things, sex between prisoners and maybe staff as well between prisoners and staff, and the idea that prisons are holiday camps, and mm -hmm. so you've got two fundamental different approaches there and i don't know how you tally them the, the fundamental issue is in the word news mm. the key word within news is new and i think a lot of the issues that affect prisons are chronic issues they've always been there yeah none There's, of them are new 
None of them are new, unless there's a riot. Um, Which is becoming more common, so (laughs) also less newsworthy. That's one way of getting coverage for prisons. But otherwise, you're not going to get interest um, from the media. Mm. on these issues so you've got a real challenge there yet mm. there's so much interest and in public opinion quite rightly on crime and feeling mm. safe but it's almost like there's a disconnect somewhere in the debate where people don't realize that what's going on in our prisons and the levels of violence translate to violence on the street because they're all coming out we have a prison population of about eighty-seven thousand, roughly there's you know there's about yeah. 60 people who are never ever ever going to come out yeah. everybody else is well the difference between you and i and the media and also readers, this is a really fundamental one, is that most people do not have experience of prisons or prisoners. Most people haven't had a member of their family in prison, Mm -hmm. so it's not humanized for them. It's just this intangible thing that happens to terrible people. So they don't have to think about it. So that, how do you get over that? But there's all sorts of issues in terms of the media and why they don't cover cover the uh, prison sector properly. First of all, there's the issue of finance. I mean, the newspapers in particular are struggling with finances. And so you've got reporters having to write a lot of stories a day, also being bombarded with stories. So I get three, four hundred emails from PRs a day. So how are you going to cover every single story? You're just not going to be able to do it. Secondly, I think the fact is most of the media is owned by right-wing, politically biased companies. So therefore, mm. they have a kind of lock them up attitude yeah. towards prisons. So I, I guess you struggle to get any coverage anywhere yeah. apart from The Guardian, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think those are really fundamental issues. But I suppose there's also the good, right? So there's lots of examples we can think of where... The media have distorted things. Taking the police, for example, there was a big drive to reduce the number of child arrests. And of course, they managed to do that and did very well. And then the media slammed them for not arresting enough people. So there's the corrosive detrimental side of it. But of course, you know, we do have to say that um, the media can be a great source of good when it comes to accountability, transparency, miscarriages of justice. Yeah. Um, but I certainly made a list of the good and the bad when it comes to media and prisons. And oh, uh, I know you, you did too. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, both of our lists are quite short on the good side and quite long. The bad side for me covers two pages. Um, so so I'm why int- do we- I've been intrigued to know what, I mean, you've got examples of stories. Of the bad? Yeah. Well, sort of various things. You touched on the holiday camp. Hmm. I've worked in prisons for almost two decades. I have yet to find this holiday camp. I speak in schools and at universities and try and educate people on the realities of prisons. Nothing more irresponsible could be said by an adult peddling the news that these places are holiday camps because actually they're full of self-mutilation, suicide, misery. To try and tell anyone, let alone a child, that these places are holiday camps blows my mind quite frankly actually related to that one of the stories that really depressed me was to do with kids visiting prisons i think mm. it was something to do with christmas parties right where i think someone a prisoner tried to put, make the visiting area quite christmassy and there was a whole story about how you know prisoners were enjoying a family christmas well exactly instead of how dare they ever smile or have a party the judge has handed down the sentence the sentence 
and the punishment is the loss of liberty. The staff should then be allowed to get on with their work. I think we forget that prisons are places, yes, where someone is serving their sentence, but they're also places of work and employment. Also places where children meet their parents. Exactly. I mean, if you, I've got a friend of mine who's in prison at the moment and he's got a young boy and taking the young boy to prison is heartbreaking. Being queuing for two hours to see his dad. At least make that hour nice for the child. Well, exactly. You don't want that child to be traumatised. So therefore, where's the responsibility within the media? If we just look at it from the staff point of view, they have a very difficult job, often an incredibly dangerous job. And then they're doing these things to sort of alleviate the misery and the pain, not just for the people that they're looking after, but potentially for themselves. Hmm. And then they get slammed for being human beings. Yeah. How, I mean, is, how is that okay? It's not okay. It's really, really hard. (laughs) We're we're preaching to the converted here. This is why even a small change in the media attitudes could make a huge difference. Because I just think this is one of the hardest hardest issues to write about. How do you make these people human for people who don't care? Mm. There's many more prisons these days. And this is a new thing within this year of 2018. Prisons are getting on Twitter. Yes. Actually, one of the few good stories I could think of on the way here was that story about which had a social networking element was when when the Ministry of Justice tried to stop prisoners getting parcels and books. Do you remember uh, that story? Yes, it's I in do. 2013. Were you involved in that? From the outside, looking in. <laughs> but that was a, I think, if memory serves, that was a great social networking success because the outrage was mainly on Twitter, wasn't it? Yeah. And I think the policy eventually changed, being it mainly did. because. So it shows you there is sentiment there in favor of reform absolutely there's so many good stories and it's just a shame that we can't shout about them some of the most impressive people i've ever met ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's in my life, a prison officer's. A lot of people as I was growing up that I wanted to be like who inspired me were people who worked in the prison system. You know, some of the prisoners I've met and worked with who now have, might have come out and I class as friends and staff that I class now as friends. No one seems to be interested in the good stuff. Yeah. 
And it's I'm really not hard. sure why. Well, because it's also newsworthy that good stuff's happening. Yeah. So why? Well, for all the reasons I mentioned before, I have got to be more. I feel like we're being too negative. Mm. I have got a list of ways you know, uh, on the way here. I was thinking of ways you could tackle this. And if you're working in the area that you do, what you can do to get the attention of people like me. And I think you can think outside the box. I think one of the things that people who don't understand the media and don't understand is that you can approach people who aren't specialists. There's a tendency to always go to the penal correspondent, the, the person who writes about prisons, and they're overwhelmed. And, you know, they have, they've written their story about prisons. If you go to people like me, who are feature writers, or maybe are international correspondents, or maybe lifestyle writers, I think you've got more of a chance because they've never really come across prisons. Mm. Or oh, actually, the best example is food. So you, I went to the Clink with you, the Clink mm -hmm. restaurant, which you helped set up. Getting food writers to go there is a way to get journalists to write about the media Absolutely. in a non-obvious way. So I think you've got to think outside the box. You've also got to understand that journalists don't have time. And so I think you really need to go to journalists with case studies, you know, with human. As soon as you bring a human being into the story, it's more interesting. Mm. Journalism, more than anything else, is about people's stories. And this is why your story actually, you know, has actually got quite a coverage, hasn't it? Because you're on, you, you, people wouldn't expect you to care about this issue. Mm, because of my background. So that makes it new and interesting. And that's one way to get a very difficult subject into the features pages mm. of the Daily Telegraph, who frankly normally wouldn't care less, right? Yeah. But you're just one example. There's probably all sorts of ways of getting people who are involved in prisons in all sorts of ways into the media. Also, like thinking about international comparisons, I think people are a bit more interested. If you just talk about British prisons, I think people's eyes glaze over. But if you say, look, Norway are doing this incredibly interesting thing, um, do you want to go and visit it? Right. You mean inviting journalists to yeah. potentially go to other countries to write about it? Yeah. But you say they have no money, so would that have to be subsidised? It would have to be subsidised, I guess. Yeah. But, I mean, the number uh, one of the issues I haven't mentioned yet, yet, and I think I've talked to you about this before, is access to prisons. Yes. I mean, that is the number one issue. One. I do think loads of journalists would be interested mm. in doing that, but we're not allowed in. Well, what do you think's changed? Because... So what I heard was that back in the day, I'm not sure when this was, if there was a bad inspection report, the governor would hold um, a press conference within the prison mm. to talk about what had gone wrong. Now, I hear that that was all stopped at some point. Can you elaborate? There's an obvious reason why it stopped. It's because the prisons are in a terrible state. It's not a good story, is it? To have journalists going around a prison that's basically falling apart. Mm. It's not in their interest, is it, to have that coverage? No, but we hear about it through the chief inspector's reports. You know, papers are now talking about the squalid conditions because, of course, it is the taxpayer in the main that pays for these places and we're less safe as a result. And there was the Channel 4 documentary, Prisons, um, about sort of flying the wall in Durham prison, which was interesting. So if they allow documentaries like that to go out, which I have to say they have to be commended for because A, it was brilliant and B, it was very important for people to see the reality. So why would they not open their doors to journalists if they're allowing fly-on-the-wall documentaries? Well, if you, I'm sure you've looked at the comments 
section at the end of any story on prisons. I tend to try not <laughs> to. <laughs> I mean, when that terrible report came out recently and the, all the comments were like, good, this is what they deserve. Yeah, but isn't there an argument say that people tend to get in touch to have a whinge and to say bad things and very, you know, when you think a good thought, you tend to keep it to yourself and you have... Yeah, but I mean, I don't know if you looked at the opinion surveys on this. I mean, people generally aren't in favour of improved conditions for prisoners. It's yeah. just... Uh, but then if you put the staff slant on it... Yeah. And talk about these places as places of employment. And I think this is keeps coming back to the importance of how these things are written about. So instead of inflaming the national view that these people deserve it, quite frankly, they should have known better, do the crime, do the time. And actually, you know, terminology is so important. Yeah. So when I'm speaking to sort of business leaders or giving a speech, I now talk about um, these places, places of employment and the self-mutilation, the suicide, the, uh, the violence. And would you put up with that? In your workplace. In your workplace. Mm. Would you put up with that in your office? The journalism is pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm uh, sure you don't have people self-mutilating no, no. around you and stringing themselves again, up to the But again, switches. you're preaching to the converted because yeah. I agree with you. But it's a bit of a bubble, isn't it? I mean, I'm very aware of what my colleagues think, you know, mm. and um, but you've touched upon something really, really important when you mentioned the, the Channel, 4, the documentary. Channel 4 documentary. People think of the media and I think newspaper coverage. Yeah, it's actually something's happening. And with Netflix and so on. And drama is an incredible TV drama is an incredibly powerful way or documentaries of getting these issues to people and cutting out the journalists. You know, it happened to me with the TV dramatization of my book. In that schizophrenia. Was that the boy with the top knot? Yeah. Yeah. Schizophrenia is the most difficult mental illness there is out there. It makes people paranoid, occasionally violent. These are people, if you see them on the street, you cross the road. A lot of these people end up in prison. And to get anything on TV or get anything written about schizophrenia is impossible in the media because it's too depressing. And people haven't got much sympathy and it's awful. But... The moment you put it, turn it into a story and put it on TV and humanize it, suddenly people are interested. Mm. And I do think that is a really important way for this issue to be discussed. Yeah. And I, it feels like there's, if anything, more appetite for that. I mean, if you ask people what one of the most popular films is out there, Shawshank Redemption. Shawshank right? Redemption. Prison yeah. films are incredibly popular because people are in the prison and suddenly they care. Yeah. The moment you put people in prison mentally, they're suddenly alive to all the issues. Mm. And I think I think what you should do is set up a TV production company. Oh god. Um that just finances <laughs> films about prisons. Yeah. I think that is a way of getting over all of these problems. Mm. Um there is a problem with as you say coming back to the access to prisons um point. And there's so many people out there who are wanting to do more and more and sort of want the access, not necessarily to harp on about the bad, but also to celebrate the good. But it's just impossible. Yeah, it's, it's really problematic because you get all these N NGOs producing report after report after report with all these terrible statistics. But they're so dry and, you know, they don't feel real to people. If you've never been in a prison, it's not real. Yeah. You know, and so how, why would you write about it? Well, exactly. It's, you know, when um, I'm in conversations with people and I say, you know, we still um, imprison women for not paying their TV licenses. They simply don't believe me. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Yeah. Said, well, unfortunately, it's true. And it's really important that we know this. This is another issue with the media. It's become in the last 20 years incredibly middle class. It's, it's become an aspirational thing for middle class people to do. Yeah. And so, I mean, I remember asking my colleagues, how many of you 
know someone has ever visited someone in prison and none of them have ever done it. Mm. And so it's beyond their experience, which makes it even harder. Yeah. And it's like the reporting of the knife crime in South London and, you know, black young men. Um, yes, it's horrific and too many people have been killed, but more women have been killed in London by uh, through domestic violence. But it just depends what the media want to talk about and, you know, the areas that they sort of want to want to inflame yeah and i guess the things you sort of see more often which is obviously the knife crime in london as opposed to the violence behind closed doors and again coming back to this mental illness domestic violence you know actually that's a really good example because the th reason why knife crime is in the papers is because middle class ch people have children who have to occasionally get a bus so they're worried about their children so suddenly this difficult issues all over the papers and prison isn't prison isn't because prisons are far away you literally never even see them. Doors. Yeah, unless you live near Holloway. Yeah. Even then you don't care. <laughs> well, no, and now it's closed, unfortunately. Oh, is it? Oh, Fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to look at it. But that's a, that's a different debate. So one thing I want to touch on is politicians and clearly their abject fear of the media and how it affects them and their jobs and their ambitions on a personal level. You know, I see it a lot. Although we've had this amazing string of quite decent prisons ministers. Am I safe to say that? Certainly a string. <laughs> and uh, there's, well, there's, been, a there's been lots. Rory Stewart, I mean, I did the, I think I did the first big interview with him when he became an MP. And I was really impressed by him. He's got real, real life experience. And, you know, he's a human being. He's really intelligent. But... He's an Etonian. And at the time, the cabinet was full of Etonians. So uh, he, I think he felt like his career was impeded just by who he was. Mm. But uh, it's so great to see him in the Ministry of Justice. Problem is, they just don't stay very long. No. And you can see him now talking about Brexit. You can see him being promoted. Absolutely. And, and sort of, I guess, where I sit in my line of work, which is sort of, you know, dealing with um, and working with politicians, the Ministry of Justice, sort of seeing how policy is made, seeing how the media sort of can come in and affect policy and change policy. I mean, maybe few people would admit that it does. There's an opportunity here in that the media hate prisoners being treated well, but also they hate waste. And there is the financial argument about reforming people and, you know, and saving money in prisons and so on. So there is that opportunity. Mm. But I do think uh, Rory Stewart and Michael Gove have been braver than almost any other politicians mm. on this issue in recent Absolutely. years. Absolutely. I would say also it is possible to treat people well and decently and to not waste our money. Yeah. And I think there is a big problem there. You know, this narrative about building more prisons. Well, Let's save money, but do the job better. Oh, yeah, and the stuff about the way prisons are managed has got quite a lot of coverage. Is it Group 4? Um, yes. Yeah, I mean, that, I don't know, I wonder why that has got quite a lot of coverage. Maybe it's because of Group 4, and um, everyone thinks they're so terrible that they want to hear more stories about how they're screwing things up. Yeah, and the <laughs> big public versus private argument that goes on. Yeah. So in a way, I mean... Things are slightly changing. I think prisons are more in the news in the last two years than they have been the five years beforehand. And so maybe there's signs of hope. I suppose if anyone's to travel in the direction of where they want to go, they need to know where they're going. So from a personal point of view, from your point of view, how should we be talking about these people? As a sort of civilised society, where would you like 
Well, I think the media to get to because we can't really get there unless we know where we're going. I guess it's the same as you. The thing that really drives people like us is to, you know, talk about reform of people as much as punishment. You know, the focus is almost entirely on punishment at the moment, isn't it? In the media. Yeah. That's all they care about. So anything on reform, for me, anything on mental illness. I mean, this incredible revolution we've had in, men, in the perception of mental illness is a wonderful thing, but it, does, it stops at the gate of the prison. Mm. Why don't people care about the mental health of prisoners? This, I mean, there's a, very, there's a controversial psychiatrist in America who I love called E. Fuller-Torrey who makes the argument that we need to talk more about the link between violence and mental illness. Because if you do so... Uh, you realize how expensive it is not to treat people. Mm. I believe in that argument because that's what happened with my father. But you, you're not kind of allowed to say that within the mental health community. It's considered un-PC. Whenever I say there's a connection between those two things, people go crazy, mm. you know, because they're like, oh, just I've got depression. doesn't make me more likely to be violent. We're more likely to be victims of violence. Mm. So yes, but if you're untreated... There's this, this proof, proof that is, the stats show that there's, you're more likely to be violent. You know? And I think that's why it's so important to understand people, whether they're prisoners or not, really doesn't matter. Everyone's behavior, your behavior, my behavior, just here and today is, is, is a result of what has come before. When, whenever I was reading the papers or when I was in a prison and you either read about something horrific or you see something horrific, I always thought, well, what led that person to do that thing? I remember when Jamie Bulger was killed. I was really quite young and not much older probably than the boys uh, that killed Jamie. But immediately I was like, how can boys that age do something so horrific? What on earth has happened to them? And I always remember being like, I want to know their story. And then as I sort of grew up and I was sort of working in the prisons, you see someone horrifically self-harming. And instead of just treating, of course, you've got to treat the person who's self-harming and actually treat their physical wounds and then treat them afterwards. But, you know, where does, where does that come from? And, and I always remember just sort of wandering around going, why is no one talking about what's happened to these people? Well, you, you're unusual. I mean, the Borgia case is a brilliant example of how the media treat crime and criminals. You know, there's very little has been written about how screwed up those kids were who committed the crime mm. and their awful childhoods and almost no compassion. It's almost like, yeah, because, of course, people tend to be the victim first. And it's that flip from be being the victim to becoming a perpetrator. Yeah. And that really sort of fine line. And, of course, perpetrators are victims, victims are perpetrators. But often we talk about them as separate people. Yeah, but interesting, the media in that case have continued to follow up stories on the killers, haven't they? Yeah. And almost determined to persecute them, you know. And so it's a particularly egregious example of what can happen. Absolutely. And I think because it's so emotional, isn't it? You yeah. can sort of understand. Totally understand it. And I can understand and I sort of think if I didn't work in the world that I worked in and if I wasn't so interested in human behavior, it's very easy just to operate on the emotional knee jerk level. But then, you know, when I'm sort of working more in this sort of policy legislation end of things and when I see all that taking place, I sometimes feel like I should be saying, 
look, can we separate the emotion from the mm. policy and the legislation? Because it is those people's jobs to be above emotion. Of course, you have to be attached and engaged with how the victim might feel to a certain extent. But it's a very difficult thing to describe when, yeah, you're dealing with such horrifically emotional subjects. But you see, this is why TV documentaries are amazing and the making of a murderer, especially in that it manipulates your emotions. So the first series, you're on one person's side and the next series, you're on the other person's side. Mm. It just shows you the power of the media. It puts you in that place that you are to give sympathy to the Mm. victim or the murderer and how easily it's switched. Mm. Uh, for a small time I worked predominantly with lifers um, and of course lifers predominantly tend to be someone, uh, a person who's killed another person, of course you know big drug crimes as well But so I met a lot of murderers and um, people say to me oh my god isn't that really scary, isn't it this isn't it that and it's actually everything that it's not because I said no the media lead us to believe that a murderer is someone who runs around with a knife just indiscriminately sort of stabbing people or they're sort of drummer Lee Rigby's killers. You know, those types, they're not. Uh, the majority of murderers that I met were people who, um, men who'd got into fights, fights in pubs and it was sort of one punch, one kill. They didn't mean to do it. Um, and then people would say, oh, well, that's okay. But then I'd say, yeah, but if you kill someone in the theatre of war, if you kill someone by pressing the button for the electric chair if you kill someone because you've punched them in the face compared to if you kill someone like drummer Lee Rigby, you know. Yeah, and, okay, and, then, and then they sort of go, oh, God, yeah, a murderer isn't just a murderer. And, of course, again, the media can come back to this very simplistic view of do the crime, do the time. Yeah. Again, it's out of that side of the experience. You just talked about war. I mean, and that's a good example in that most people haven't been to war. They don't know what it's like to be on the front line. And so a lot again, of people don't understand that someone's household can be a war zone. Yeah, exactly. And um, so it's out of sight, out of mind mm. and out of your heart. You just don't care. Mm. I think you're doing you're doing really important work. And I do think you can make a big difference in this area because it, things are really, really bad. Do you think we'll ever achieve real prison reform without the media changing their stance? Or do you think a lot of our work is futile if they don't come with us? It gives me hope that Michael Gove was a journalist. <laughs> yeah. And so if he can change his mind um, or be compassionate or intelligent about it, I think we can too. And it gives me hope also that Rory Stewart's taking on the media, you know. And actually, I don't think he, he's had a necessary negative response to what he said, has he? I think it's no, been... I think, you know, the nature of Twitter, you're always going to get an yeah. army of trolls after you. But um, I think in the main, because... Actually, there's a right way to do things and there's a wrong way, regardless of what people think about that. Um, If you want someone to come out of prison less violent, we know what we have to do, whether people like that or not, shouldn't, to a certain extent, come into it because it is all of our jobs who work in prisons to make sure that we're working towards people coming out in better shape. But anything you do or anyone does to make prisons real in positive or negative ways for people, isn't it? Is a really powerful thing because mm. it's intangible at the moment. It's too many people. Mm. So if you can get any kind of people into prison, just drag them in. <laughs> by any drag me- them in by any means, <laughs> not resorting to making them commit crimes, but just make it come alive. Yeah, Satnam, it's been a real pleasure talking to you today. Thanks for coming along. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Justice. 
If you found it interesting, you can discover more about the work we do within the justice system by visiting our website, onesmallthing.org.uk. One Small Thing is a charitable organisation striving for positive change in the justice system. If you would like to subscribe to Justice, you can do so via your usual podcast platform. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.